Father, we pray that as you speak through your word, you would allow for just what's in your heart um, to flow through my heart to our hearts. And uh, Father, I do pray for each and every person here that as we um, just take this time, that you would be able to um, reveal more fully uh, your incredible love for us, to challenge us where we need to hear truth, to move more fully into that grace that you have provided for us through you. Uh, your son, Jesus, we thank you in Christ's name. Amen. I had an opportunity this past week, um, really this weekend, to go to a Hazleton uh, gala event and, and to just kind of hear um, some different people. There was interesting because of so many um, people that we would know who talked about specifically chemical dependency and, and alcohol addiction and things such as that. And they had um, Jim Ramstead there and his wife. They also had... Um, Amy Klobuchar and others, and they were giving away, you know, kind of um, auctioning off gifts like a, a dinner at Al Franken's home with Al Franken and Jim Ranstead and his wife. And I was thinking, man, what would you say there? Um, and, then, and then there was the actual canoe trip with Don Shelby where you would go fishing, and Don Shelby would share with you fish stories and show you his hot spots on, on the river. And... Um, I was thinking, I'd turn that canoe over probably 20 times if I was in that thing. Um, so it's good I didn't uh, bid on any of those things. Um, but one thing that came out that I thought was rather interesting was, was how generational this addiction is. And how it had impacted family after family. And they had people share and in their sharing um, some remarkable stories of how God really had intervened and changed some courses of some families. But there was this sense, though, in some ways, though, that it's just an inevitability that what is here will be passed down. And a lot of it was to really try and help um, youth and to set up these kind of centers to do so. I, I read a perceptive bit of poetry that I think captures the agony of what some children feel. God saved the children trapped in a game, living in fear, hiding the pain, battered by devils, screaming in vain, feeling the wrath, then doing the same. This idea that what they experienced and what they so hated and what they so wanted to escape from, they turn around and do the same thing. And what I find is interesting, when we come into chapter 18, we find that Jesus, in a sense, as he moves through this whole first few verses, in verses 1 through 4, about becoming like children, gives some incredibly strong warnings about the things that we pass down and we pass on. In chapter 16, if you look back at Matthew, Jesus at a certain point has been speaking to crowds and now he had been speaking specifically, answering some questions to the the religious leaders, the spiritual parents of the church of that day. And at a certain point, he just said, you've chosen to be blind and you've chosen to pass on 
what I've come to release you from. And he turns his back in a sense and he starts giving direction now to his disciples. And at this point, when we get to chapter 18, verse 1, beginning in verse 1, we find in Matthew that he has a fourth discourse. It's a seminar, so to speak. He had the Sermon on the Mount in chapter 5 and on chapter 10. He gives a, a special instructions to his disciples. Chapter 13, he talks about the kingdom, about how heaven invades earth now, giving some parables. And at this point in chapter 18, he kind of says to his, his, his disciples, who he, he hears their arguing about status and power and grasping the highest place when Jesus sets up his kingdom or this new family is begun. And Jesus stops and says, it's time for another seminar in a sense. He says, grab a pen and paper, you guys. I want to take you through and I want to share with you the importance of what I want to see established in this new family that I'm leaving. Because in six months, guys, he said a number of times, I'm going to suffer and I'm going to die and I'm going to leave you. And when I leave you, I want you to establish what I have been establishing here. And if you look at the ministry of Jesus, what's amazing is he has these little ones, which you look in verses 1 through 4, he's referring often about becoming like a child, little ones. These little ones, in a sense, the weak and the hurt and the injured, are flocking around him. They want to be a part of his family they so love the taste of his grace and his goodness and so jesus comes to set us free from doing the same and passing on death and instead giving life and bringing truth and giving people this sense of grace and in a world that grabs for power and finds our significance outside ourselves In a world that seeks to know it so you can control it. In a world that tries to look together and perfect. When we really know we're not, Jesus comes and he says, I want you to create a different kind of family on this earth. And so if you look at chapter 18, verses 5 through 9, and when I used last week chapter uh, verse 5, because verse 5 is kind of a hinge verse. It, it, It begins from 4 and then moves to really um, this section here that begins in 5 and goes through verse 6 specifically. And so his church family, he says, um, I want you not to do the same. So he begins in verse 5 after he says, become like little children. And he says, and whoever welcomes one such child in my name welcomes me. And then verse 6 through 7 are really kind of a grouping. And verse 8 through 9 is another one. So he says, then, if anyone causes one of these little ones, those who believe in me, to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Now, you've got to understand, and I need to put this in context, he's not speaking here about the world. He is speaking to his new family who he's setting up, and he's talking to this group that will be carrying on this new family that he wants to establish. I mean, Jesus didn't die just for us individually. He died to establish this body of believers called the church, this assembly. And so if anyone would do that, he says, it's better to have a millstone hung around your neck and be thrown into the depths of the sea. But verse 7, woe to the world because of the things that cause people to stumble. Such things must come. But woe to the person through whom they come. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. 
If your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be thrown into the fire of hell. The first thing I want you to note is you kind of look through this passage of Scripture. Jesus is kind of making this kind of statement. The little things you do have great impact. In fact, one of the things you need to realize is as people, our choices, they affect God. That's what verse 5 in a sense is saying. So there's a real sense that you can be very thankful about this. Not afraid, but really something that's a very good thing. How you treat others, Jesus says, is, I'll feel it. How you treat these little ones is how you treat me. And that's really a good thing because that's something that you should be very thankful for. You don't have to go through all kinds of religious acts and and do all kinds of huge sacrificial things. You can actually in your daily life on a regular basis, moment by moment, as you follow and listen to the Spirit of God and live out the principles of the truth of God's Word, you have the opportunity out of the love that He's placed in your heart because you've experienced it from Him to touch someone else with love. And in touching someone else with love, you are touching the very heart of Jesus. That's a great and wonderful truth. For over welcomes a child in my name welcomes me. And if you wrote, note here in verse 5, in my name means they come in the character of Jesus. It parallels what he says in verse 6 where he says, those who believe in me. So in a sense, he's saying these are not just children literally, but those who have become childlike in relation to God their Father. They're usually the kind of people who are coming to Jesus that He saw all around Him. He, in a sense, His disciples and His followers had seen through His own ministry. The ones who were attracted to Him, the ones who were coming to Him for help were these weak, these little ones in the faith. In the sense, they came and the spiritual parents stood there and questioned and they, in many times, mocked the very things that Jesus as a parent was doing for them. And the lesson is really this. God's bound up with His children. He's one of them. These people who are coming and who are seeking God and they understand their sin and shame and they understand that they have a need. He's one of them. And your choices impact not just them but God. So one of the simplest ways to touch the heart of God is just to touch another person with love, grace, and mercy. Um, There's all kinds of truth around this. This whole concept of of Jesus' understanding of God is all throughout Scripture. How we relate to one another is more than just the sum of the two of us. There's there's always this threesome involved. Matthew 25, 45 is one of those verses. I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of these, least of these brothers of mine you did for me. And you can read it all through, like Luke, he who listens to you listens to me. Um, John, I tell you the truth, whoever accepts me accepts anyone... Um, who comes that I send. And on, I could read more and more. But practically speaking, this means in the parenting process, whether in a church or an individual family, for instance, our choices towards little ones touch the heart of God, for good or bad. And Jesus is making this principle, which he has just said in these first four verses that we talked about last week, he's, he's applying it to those who are insignificant, simple, and imperfect as they come to God. They recognize this. The followers of Jesus are not welcome because they are great, wise, and appear to have their act together. They belong because they are seeking to know this God who says they're significant. Who says just come in simple trust. And who says, though imperfect, if you hunger for me, I will cause you to grow into maturity. So how do you treat these little ones in faith? How do we treat them, says Jesus? It's because Jesus considered... 
all his followers, even the most insignificant from a human standpoint, as precious. Isn't that wonderful? Jesus looks at a little child who they want to shush and push away, and he picks it up and holds it and says, this child is precious to me. There is a sense that this morning, if you have this sense, I'm not very significant, I don't have much to offer, I'm not real learned, I don't really even hardly know the Word of God. I feel shame because I know I've blown it, I've hurt people, I've hurt God. I don't even understand in any way how this God would want me. But for some reason I showed up here and I'm here and I want you to know that Jesus looks at you as those little ones. And if you were here in in, in the time when Jesus walked, you would be flocking up to the front. Because you would feel from his heart this incredible sense that you are precious in his sight. And you are. Because your Father in Heaven is perfect, and He, as a perfect Father, is that perfect Father you never had or you wished you had. He loves and He provides and He protects you. And folks, when we give another person grace like that, we show them mercy and express kindness and we touch the heart of God. Parents, you know this. It's not too hard to imagine this because you have children. You know when your children um, is, is you know, lost in a, let's say, in a... a in a, um, I remember as a kid being lost in a grocery store, and I just, you know, I was about four years of age, and I turned the corner, lost sight of my mom. Somehow she must have turned, and I was just petrified. And another person came, found me, and found my mom, and brought me back to her. And I know as a parent, I'm hoping this is true. <laughs> she was delighted to see me. When someone cares for your little one, it touches your heart. But you catch Jesus here. He's not just saying, as people, our choices affect Him. That's what the first. As people, when you welcome someone, you welcome them in, their, in, in His name, you are actually touching the heart of God. As parents, here's the second thing our choices affect our children. And He says, beware. But Jesus catches their attention at this point. He's saying, in a sense, to these followers who have been trained now over a number of years, and it's not just maybe 12, there's a whole group of them, and he's saying in six months he'll be leaving, and he's saying to them this truth. Um, you, in a sense, have become seasoned or mature, and as spiritual parents, your choices are going to affect these little ones. And Jesus continues the issue of warning in a sense. My dad is not only the most righteous, just father you could ever imagine. He's the kind of dad who says, you mess with my kids. You mess with me. I have to say that again to you. If you're in this place where you feel insignificant and, 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 and you are in this place where you're coming in simple trust to God and you recognize your shame, your imperfection and all those things, you are so precious in His sight that He actually is saying to you that when someone has messed with you or is messing with you, that person will someday have to face the Father in Heaven. You mess with one of my kids, says the father perfectly, who is righteous. And you're messing with me. So he begins with the stern warning. As parents, our choices affect our children. And that's an incredibly important thing to be aware of. As tough as this teaching is, Jesus was aware of the sinful nature in all of us. And as he was preparing to leave and establishing this new family, he wanted to make it very clear 
That these assemblies, these churches that would be um, begun after he left in all these little places around the world and eventually through generations would come to the point where there would be a church even like Wyzetta Free. He was making it very, very clear. You as seasoned, mature believers, you as spiritual parents in, in a world that have these little ones seeking after God, you need to realize as a body, your choices impact others. Jesus, in this, in this passage of Scripture, is kind of interesting because a little bit later in chapter 18, you know He's talking to the church because in chapter 18, verse 17, He at once says, tell it to the church or to the assembly, which is the new family. He's only in Matthew mentioned the word assembly or church, the very word church twice. Once in Matthew 16, where in verse 18, He says, on this rock I will build my church. And now in this teaching, this group of teaching, as He's talking to the family that is going to be established, He says it again. And he wants to make something very clear. That he does not want spiritual abuse in his family. And you might go, well, what does that mean? The supreme offense of those who are stronger, more knowledgeable, more adept, more gifted, more domineering, and who eventually find righteousness in themselves and lose track of the fact that it was always in God, is to make knowing God more difficult for those who are insignificant, simple, and deeply aware of their sin and perfection. The temptation to use others for our ends or our needs, to use what we know to control others, to hide our shame through our self-righteousness in order to look good and to increase, in a sense, our status before the eyes of God so that others feel like they could never attain or measure up to how good we are is something to be very cautious about. And that's why Jesus continues in verse 6, if anyone causes one of these little ones... Those who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a large millstone hung around their neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. I want to comment just quickly on a few of these things in this verse because it's important that we understand a little bit about this warning before we move to this idea of causing one of these little ones to stumble. A large millstone. He, he talks about a large millstone being hung around someone's neck. In those days, many households had little millstones that you would grind yourself. They were small little ones. But the word in the Greek is specific here. It means one that is large. It is one that is so big that it would take a donkey, sometimes a couple oxen, to turn the thing. It was huge. And so Jesus refers to this heavy stone and says, This is what you've got to watch out for. If, you, if in any way you cause others to stumble. Now, that's a, that's a strong statement. Or he says, drowned in the depths of the sea. That's what will hang around you so that you'll be drowned in the depths of the sea. Drowning in both a Gentile and a Roman society was not necessarily something uncommon. But in a Jewish society, it very rarely happened. In fact, Josephus, the historian around the time of Christ, only mentions one time when one person was ever drowned in the Lake of Galilee. And it was because a person chose to follow Herod in, in, in this um, uprising. To the Jew... This was one of the worst forms of punishment. It was a symbol of utter destruction. And when the rabbis taught that heathen and Gentile objects would be destroyed, they said they'd be thrown or cast into the salt sea. Now, Jesus makes a very interesting statement. He says, woe, in a sense, to the world, because if such things cause people to stumble, those things must come. Which is kind of interesting also that he's been saying, be really careful, but the world, that's going to happen. 
And he's simply being real about all of this. He's saying, don't think it's strange when this kind of thing happens in the world, because in the world, this is going to happen. This is the way the world is set up. What you guys are arguing about, about being the greatest and grabbing for power and this idea that if I know I can control everything and, and I find my security not in God, but in what I can control and all these things that you are arguing for in a sense, which materialize in being the highest, most powerful and the greatest. It's the very system that ends up using everybody else, using the little ones. And that's not what I want my family to look like. And so he gives this huge warning. This is this awaits for someone. So in the world that we live in, he's being very realistic. We, the world we live in set up in this kind of power system. These kind of temptations will come. Sin has entered the world. It will cause people to stumble. That's the very system that's been put together here. It's part of life. But woe. Even in the world to the person to whom such things come through them. And heaven forbid this be a part of my church. See, Jesus knew the impact of parenting, whether in a home or a spiritual parents in a church. And his warning is so great because Jesus knew a person's individual sin may be limited in its own consequences. But if we teach another knowingly and even sometimes unknowingly to sin, what happens in something like that is it will turn that person will teach another and that will teach another. And it has this rippling, cascading effect. So Jesus pauses at a point and says, without holding anything back, as parents, our choices impact our children, so don't be the cause of stumbling. As seasoned churchgoers, as spiritual parents, our choices impact those who are seeking, who are acutely aware of their shame in the world in which we live, so don't be the cause of those who believe in me to stumble. And three times he uses this idea of stumble. And he was constantly confronting the scribes and Pharisees, again, the spiritual parents of that church family of that day with this truth. Challenging them for putting up rules that cause those who are seeking God to feel abandoned by God. By living in such a way that their um, life would, would force others to say, there's no way God could accept me because I just can't do what they're doing. I just can't give what they're giving. In fact, in just a few chapters, we'll look at Matthew 23. Jesus will list a series of seven woes that have caused the father's little ones to stumble. He's caused them to falter in their faith in this belief that this God is gracious and loving and would even provide for them. Matthew 23, verse 4 and 5 says this. These spiritual parents tie up heavy loads and put them on men's shoulders, but they themselves are not willing to lift a finger to move them. Everything they do is done for men to see. So as a church families, we can't even think about this. We can't let this slide by too quickly. And parents, you need to think deeply about this. And a lot of times this is true, largely in part because, think about it, children just don't have the range of choices that adults have. Isn't that true? Children just don't have the same range of choices that adults have. So Jesus is, is not, he's not in any way holding anything back. He's saying, those of you who know and understand, those of you have an understanding of God and His Word and you understand what this means, those of you as parents in the home that you're creating and what you're creating as you create this, you have a range of decisions and understanding that your kids don't have. And they rely on the world. They rely on you to explain the world that they live in. I read an interesting thing in in a book by Sandra Wilson, she says in shame-free parenting, she, she says it's really important 
that parents understand that we paint a picture of the reality of what our children will live in and that they understand. She says, and uses this as an example, I grew up in an English-speaking family, so that means that I learned to think and speak in English. And it also means that I couldn't wake up one morning and suddenly decide to think and speak in French. Right? In effect, I live in an English-speaking universe because I didn't even know that French or any other language existed. And having no alternative source of information about language as a child, I had no choice but to think and speak in my parents' language. Now, suppose that my parents not only taught me to think and speak in English, but also taught me that English was the only real, correct, good, valuable, moral, worthwhile language in which to think and speak. They have, kids don't have anything more to know than what their parents are teaching them. And having no alternative source of information about language as a child, I would have no choice but to believe that their statements reflected reality. And suppose further that when I got a little older, I noticed that some families did not always think and speak in English, and I asked my parents to explain. What do you think would have happened if they had told me subtly or brutally that I was stupid and or crazy for even thinking about the possibility of using another language? And what if my parents also implied that I was disloyal to even raise the issue that if I wanted to stay a part of their family, I had better learn to think and speak as they did? And having no alternative source of family, food, shelter, relationship, I would have little choice but to buy my parents' presentation of reality. Because the alternative was a sense of abandonment. It would be life-threatening for a child. So self-protectively and unknowingly, I would choose to adopt my parents' English-only perceptual grid. And from then on, every experience in or out of my family would be filtered through that interpretive grid. And even as an adult, in order to be loyal to my family and be a loyal child, I would have to avoid my parents' emotional abandonment and I would filter out all other language choices. And when my parents and other adults give children a false perception of reality, that becomes an obstacle that makes children stumble because they believe these lies are truth and act on them and the children can experience disastrous personal spiritual consequences in a sense her point is this and this is Jesus' point he came to him and he said this system which is shame based which is based on a whole system that if you do enough and you just are good enough you can please God and you try hard enough that whole system will cause a whole bunch of people to live in this grid and will force people to kind of run that grid and Jesus said that's not the one I set up you just don't get it guys when you set up my family in that way it's just not my family has been set up in a grace based system which means it will it will be one that operates by my love and not by the law it is one that will operate by the power and the the life giving spirit of god not one that operates by one's flesh and ability to kind of somehow make it in god's eyes it is one that will be from the heart where this one is all about appearance. It's one that is based on the acceptance of what God has done through Jesus versus one that's always accepted on the the basis of how you perform, what you look like, what others think. And it makes a system that causes others to never come into a vital experience with Christ. And Jesus said... I would rather have, and you need to know, that a millstone should be hung on the neck and thrown into the sea for those who will in any way create this kind of system because from this system comes all kinds of choices that impact 
little ones. Our choices powerfully affect our children. As spiritual parents and families, our choices as a church impact little ones. And God has called us to live in such a way out of this this system that, that Jesus, through grace, has set in place, that through that it sets people free to know and experience God. So, Jesus goes on at this point, after he gives this warning, and he makes it really clear, hell now and eternally is the result of this shame-paced approach to God. It will never get you to God. It will always, forever and ever, keep you separate from God. And that's why in chapter 23 and verse 15, he says, Woe to you, spiritual parents of his day. You travel over land and sea to win a single convert, and when he becomes one, you make him twice a son of hell as you are. That's a pretty powerful statement. And so Jesus calls for radical action. So if it's true that as, as people, our choices touch the heart of God, and if it's true as parents, our choices impact our children. So it's really important um, how we're building the system in our own lives and family and churches. It's also true. This is incredibly true what Jesus has to say here. As adults, we all have a choice. We have a choice. We have a choice to do things differently. Jesus calls out any kind of game playing, and he says, in a sense, wake up, don't live in denial, show up, don't live in shame, own up, don't live in blame, grow up and choose life, even if it means you have to maim or cripple yourself to do so. Look at verse 8. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life maimed or crippled than to have two hands or two feet and be thrown into eternal fire. And if your eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out, throw it away. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and then be thrown into the fire of hell. Jesus doesn't mince words. The truth is we need to make tough choices. As adults, every one of us have the opportunity to, to now, before God, in His presence, begin to say what choices... What system am I going to live in? I read recently that every significant breakthrough in life requires some kind of break with. And that's what I think Jesus was saying. You need to break with this, guys. So to achieve breakthrough in our lives and in our parenting, as well as any kind of family system we desire to establish here in this church or in our lives in our own families, we have to often break with old family messages or patterns that deny the truth and continue a shame-based kind of system. And so choosing the truth, we must be willing to break with our parental patterns or, pra- or parenting practices when these patterns or practices are, are rooted in lies and shame. So Jesus says, do whatever it takes to be my family, even radical surgery. And this isn't about blaming. This isn't about making your parents out to be monsters or your church you may have been from as horrible is not about assuming that everything we've been taught has been a lie. That kind of all or nothing, what I call thinking in extremes, is really a result of this kind of thinking. It's an immature kind of thinking. It's not maturity. It calls for examining our lives and practices with an inner ruthless honesty and choosing as adults, because as adults we will be held accountable for our choices. 
And it, it means establishing a culture of grace where our significance is in God, where we teach people that it's through simple trust in what He has done and what He has done alone. It has no other things around it but this simple trust in His ability to work His Spirit in you to bring about transformation. And as that happens, it also requires for us to understand that we're not going to be perfect, so let's quit trying to appear to be perfect. Let's recognize this very simple truth that we are sinners saved by His grace And the goal is growth, not perfection. The only way perfection comes is when we stand with God. There are just a number of of potential lies that I think can be found in family systems. And for the sake, I want to read through these and we'll put them on the board if we can. And I want you to see these things because these are things that I think people believe growing up sometimes in family systems. A lie is this. My parents and my church are giant geniuses who always will be smarter and stronger than I am. Some of you have come out of systems like that. The truth is this, and praise God this is true. Parents are older human beings. This means they must have more information and physical strength than children. And under normal circumstances, children will be about as smart or smarter and as strong or stronger someday. Another lie. I was selfish and caused trouble as a child when I had personal needs of my own that inconvenienced my parents. The truth is this. All children have legitimate personal needs that often inconvenience their parents. This is just one of the realities of parenting. Another lie. My parents are supposed to protect and direct me forever since they will always know more than I know. And the reality is this. My parents were supposed to protect and direct me when I was young. And as I got older, my parents were supposed to teach me how to protect myself in most situations and how to seek God's protection and direction in all situations. As I read these, I know some of you might relate to these at one level and some may not. My parents, is another lie, are supposed to love me more when I obey and make them look good. Churches do this as well. The lie is that. The truth is I should not have to earn my parents' love. Parents are supposed to love their children unconditionally. I'm supposed to make my parents happy, a lie that many grew up with. The truth is this. I didn't have the power to make my parents or anybody else happy any more than anybody else has the power to make me happy. A lie. I am supposed to please my parents and if I work hard enough or I'm good enough I will be able to please my parents and truth is being pleased is a function of my parents value system I'm supposed to live to please God this may or may not please my parents too a lie I'm supposed to meet all my parents needs and give them a reason to feel good about themselves in a sense fix them the truth is I do not have to fix my parents or any other person God doesn't need children to fix parents. He already has sent Jesus to do that. Lies. My parents accurately assessed my intrinsic worth, and their treatment of me is a commentary about my true identity. And the truth is this. I and all human beings have intrinsic worth because we are made in the image of God. Therefore, all human beings deserve respectful treatment. And my parents' treatment of me is a commentary about them, not about me. Ever had that kind of situation? You just kind of go, that's, not, that's more about them than maybe about me, because I know who I am in God. Last, another lie. Loyal, loving, and respectful children will always follow their parenting rules since parents were perfect or almost perfect. 
Being a loyal, loving, respectful child does not mean I must pretend that either my parents or their rules were perfect because lying is not loving. Get real. One of the coolest things about the wisdom of God is that in his infinite wisdom, he set up generations. And the reason we are a multi-generational church is because we have the joy of learning from those who are older from us. We have the joy also of being able to challenge those who are older from us so that we can hear the Spirit of God working in our midst if we allow for that kind of system to take place. And the wisdom of God in a multi-generational life is that even adult children, guess what, are impacted by the choices that you make today to grow spiritually. Because as adults, not our parents or anyone else, not the church is responsible for your choices. You are. You know, one of the things that I was recognizing when I was going through this when Jesus says you need to take radical action Um, you've been given this choice of free will is um, Jesus says do whatever it takes even if it's radical surgery remember Aaron Ralston the movie the the guy who um, was a trapped he's trapped hiker by an 800 pound boulder and he made this unimaginable choice he committed this desperate act just to survive. When you kind of think of that, and that was just a physical act, Jesus is saying the same thing sometimes from the things that we got to break with in order to have the breakthrough to live in this life of grace and in the Spirit. And he says some of those actions require that kind of surgical action to take place so that you will not continue to ever have to live in this system because this system of trying to please God and somehow trying harder and, and what Jesus was most concerned for His church was never set up that system. And it happens so subtly. So as a church, one of our responsibilities is to constantly be asking, does the choices, the things that we're doing reflect this system? Or do they do like Jesus said? Do they, do they set up the system that welcomes their little, his little ones? And in doing so, you are actually touching the heart of God. Sometimes those are just tough choices. And those choices um, that you make personally have huge impacts on others. I remember my choice um, at one point in my life, um, which was many choices that followed after that. My choice to be a healthier church leader, husband, and parent forced me eventually to be a healthier person. I was thinking I was doing it for all those other things, and it was really about just my own getting right in my heart before God and really understanding these things. And I I remember at a certain point um, making a choice to go in and and, and actually sit down with a counselor, someone who was wiser and someone who could help me understand what was going in my heart. And that was in a time when the last thing a pastor should ever do is be seen in a counselor's office. Because you don't, you know, if if he's being, you know, He's a kook. And I remember sitting in there, and I had made this choice that I was going to say, God, I don't care whatever it is, ruthlessly, honestly, I want so much to live in your grace that I need to understand what causes me to live in this. And I remember sitting in that office, sitting there, just kind of not wanting anyone to see me. I don't know what your choice will mean for you. To walk in the grace of God. To, to build a family in the grace that comes from, uh, from his, his life but you do. 
And God will lead you to that. I'm going to ask you to, um, to stand. Just a few prayers, and we're going to just read these prayers, and then I'm going to have the worship team close. And you can pray this prayer if you want to as an individual. And it may be an incredibly important prayer in your own heart. And it's a simple prayer, and you can just read it up there. I'll read it, and in your own heart you can read it yourself. Lord Jesus, this morning, I will choose to break with anything that displeases you so that you, Holy Spirit of God, make break through with your life-giving power. And whatever that situation is, you can just name it before God. And then as a church, Lord Jesus, this morning as your body, your church family, we choose you to fill us with your Holy Spirit. Create among us a family based on grace, rooted and established in love. And now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his powers that work within us. To him be glory in this church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.